Father, we praise you for who you are, the almighty creator and sustainer of all things. And we pray that we would, our lives would give you glory and that this time this morning as we open up your word would be glorifying to you. Pray that um, this text of scripture, which can seem obscure to us, would, that you would give us clarity, um, clarity to the meaning that you're intending in this text um, as, it re- as it relates to the roles of men and women in your church. Pray that you would cause our hearts to submit to your word and your word alone. And we also ask that you would prepare our hearts for um, worship today and in your, in your service to you. Pray for the preaching of the word later and the, the singing of the word and the, and the praying of the word that it would be beneficial to our, our lives, beneficial to our edification. Grow us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, we are beginning our look at specific New Testament texts regarding the roles of men and women in the church and home. And we'll be looking at chapter 4 of Kevin DeYoung's book, Men and Women in the Church. And this chapter covers two texts in 1 Corinthians, but mainly focuses on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. And you are going to need a Bible today. Well, not need, but it will be very helpful for you if you have a Bible. And open up to 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. And I'm just going to read this text since it's going to be where the majority of our time is in. And so we can get acquainted with it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, 
nor do the churches of God. So, just to be up front, this is probably the hardest of all of the text in the book and on this, on this topic of complementarianism to interpret, and that is due to a variety of factors, and many of them are what DeYoung lists as the main questions of the text in his chapter, and those are going to be the main points of dispute that we're going to get into. But one important point I want to make before diving into the chapter, and I got this argument from Tom Schreiner, Dr. Schreiner, whose interpretation of this text I'll be relying heavily on this morning. Um, but Schreiner argues that the difficulties in interpreting this text have led some to say that we can't establish any doctrine or teaching on the role relationships between men and women from this text, from this particular text. Because there's, there's so much disagreement and downright confusion on what Paul is saying. And Schreiner thinks we must reject this type of thinking or conclusion. Because just because there are difficulties, which as we'll see in a moment, there are many, but just because there are difficult things to interpret in the text doesn't mean there is not clarity as to the main point or the main principle in the passage. So some of the key issues the text is addressing are not as difficult to interpret. And, and here's a key point. The issues that are difficult to interpret or remain obscure to us in our, in our current context don't affect the central teaching of the passage. They don't, they don't change the main principles. So does that make sense? So, so there, there, there are, are there difficult aspects of this text to interpret? The answer is absolutely yes. But the main point, the main principle of the text is clear. And the hard-to-interpret parts of the text don't actually change the meaning of the main point in any significant way. This will hopefully become clear as we dive into the text and work through some of these points. But I do want to say up front that I strongly reject the idea, I think we must strongly reject the idea that is fairly popular today, that we just need to throw this text away in our understanding of the role of men and women because it's difficult to understand. There is an abiding principle in this text, I'm going to argue, that is applicable to our current context and to every context for all Christians who will ever live. So DeYoung in his book does not go through every line of this passage and instead deals with the text by looking at the most difficult to interpret and the most debated aspects of the text. And these most debated passages also happen to be those that are most related to our thinking about men and women and their roles. And so DeYoung breaks this down in five questions, five questions regarding 1 Corinthians 11, and then one question on 1 Corinthians 14 that is slightly related. So we're just going to go through these questions in turn. So question one that DeYoung asks of the text is, what does it mean that the husband is the head of his wife? In 1 Corinthians 11.3. What does it mean that the husband is the head of his wife? And really, I think this is the most crucial, crucial aspect to our interpretation of this whole passage. And it, and it lies in the meaning of 
the word head here in verse 3. So we're going to spend quite a bit of our time here in question 1. And what we see in verse 3 is that Paul outlines a series of overlapping relationships. And each of these relationships has a head. Paul writes that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So the question is, what does head mean? Now, some scholars believe this term means source, like the head or the beginning of a river is its source. Others, other scholars um, have argued this term means prominent or the preeminent member or the foremost. I think, and most conservative evangelicals think, the clearest meaning of this word is simply authority over authority over. And just so you know, this is where a lot of the debate between egalitarians and complementarians lie, is in the definition of this word. But de Young makes a helpful point here that I want to highlight, that even if we were to grant that the word means something other than authority over, which again, that's what I think the, the word means, but even if we were to grant that the word means something else like more prominent or preeminent partner, the point Paul is making is still the same. Paul is using the the word to refer almost certainly to one with authority of some sort over the other, regardless of how you define the word. But there is good evidence by looking at Paul's use of the word, of this word head, in other parts of his writing that suggests the meaning of the word is in fact authority over or authority. So in Ephesians, we get two accounts of Paul using this word, at least two, actually I don't know if there's more, but first we see it in chapter 1 where Paul says that Christ has been seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and all things have been placed under his feet, and he has been made head over all things to the church. And so Schreiner argues that the the focus on the exaltation of Christ in the context of chapter 1 of Ephesians suggests pretty clearly, pretty undoubtedly, that the meaning of the word head there in Ephesians 1 is authority. Also in the famous marriage passage in Ephesians 5, which Chance is going to be walking us through next week, Paul says that, that wives are to submit to their husbands, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Being the the head as the grounds for submission of wives to their own husband really only makes sense if head means authority. Authority over. Also, it's, it's uncontroversial to believe that Jesus is the authority over or or the head of the church, as the rest of the verse says in Ephesians 5. So de Young points out that there really are zero grammatical or contextual reasons to think that Paul is using the word head in a different way in our text in 1 Corinthians 11. All that to say, I think the evidence is rather clear here that the word head means authority. So now what what, what does verse 3 mean then? Well, if Schreiner and de Jong and the complementarians are correct then the meaning of the text is actually very clear. Paul is saying that Christ is the authority over every man, the husband is the authority over his wife, and God is the authority over Christ. 
is pretty, pretty straightforward. And an important thing to notice is that Paul appeals to relation between members of the Trinity. So it's clear that, that Paul does not view the relations described here or the authority described here in these relationships as merely cultural or the result of the fall, which, remember, that's the claim of many egalitarians. So now there, it's time for an aside on the Trinity. But before any questions or comments, what we've gone through so far. All right, the Trinity. So, okay. I mean, I think there, it's pretty clear from, just take even the creation account, that there is a responsibility on the man who has authority over the wife, his wife. Um, uh huh. The, the reason I'm hesitating is just because of the other relationships mentioned, specifically God ahead of Christ. So my, my answer would be I don't know. But it's a good question. Yeah. So de Young has a little section in his book, just a couple of paragraphs. So I think it's an important topic to address as well about the Trinity. A few years ago, I think maybe in 2016, there was a pretty major controversy amongst conservative evangelicals of different varieties regarding a specific teaching on the Trinity and complementarianism. And some of that debate centered on this text here in verse 3. And it's clear in the text that Paul is making an an important point by relating husband and wife relationship to the headship of God over Christ. And his point is that that headship does not imply ontological inferiority or inferiority of essence. Or in other words, to, to have authority over someone is not inconsistent with equality of honor and equality of worth. The issue is there were some complementarians, and it's hard to say how many, but a good number of influential complementarians, specifically associated with um, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which we've talked about a lot. And these guys argued that a part of the essence of the Trinity, or what is sometimes called the ontological Trinity, consists of the Son's submission to the Father. This is now most often called the uh, eternal functional subordination of the Son, or you, you might see it as EFS for short. The issue is this teaching and idea gets dangerously close to the heresy of subordinationism. Um, which is the belief that the Son and the Holy Spirit are subordinate to the Father in nature or being, or in essence. And I want to be clear, um, many of the men who were accused of holding this position, or who who say they hold this position still, which I I would say they, they are faithful, conservative, evangelical men, they have since clarified their position, and while not every complementarian or evangelical is happy with their response, the general consensus is that these men are not heretics, which is what kind of the first charge was back in 2016. So this was a very serious debate, a very serious charge. 
Now, having said that, I think, and this is de Young's point in the, the argument he's making in the book, is that talking about the Trinity in this way is very dangerous and really not necessary for the complementarian debate. And that since we should be extremely cautious about making sweeping statements about the essence of the Trinity or what distinguishes the persons of the Trinity from verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11. De Young also helpfully points out that we need to, be, we need to retrieve the theological categories of, of what is called the economic and the ontological trinity that has been historically used by the church in this discussion. And De Young argues that in this text we see the, the, the economic trinity on display. The economic trinity is a theological term that means the activity of God and the work of the three persons of the trinity in creation and redemption. The activity of God and the work of the three persons of the trinity in creation and redemption. So not the the essence of the trinity. You see the distinction? If, if we're talking strictly about the economic trinity then, as de Young argues, we can certainly say that the Son acts from the Father while the Father does not act from the Son. Um, and that way the incarnate Son, Christ Jesus, submits to the Father and the plan of salvation, and God is the authority over Christ. God is Christ's head, as Paul says here in verse 3. But the language of eternal subordination of the Son is not the best way, I would argue, to describe that. And more importantly, that is not how the church has historically confessed the truths regarding the Trinity. De Young argues that the traditional Nicene teaching on the Trinity, which is what believing Orthodox Christians, the, the church, has always confessed as true, but the traditional teaching only distinguishes the persons of the Godhead by their relations of origin and nothing else. So the Son is eternally generated or begotten of the Father, and the Spirit spirates or proceeds from the Father and the Son. So those relations of origin alone are what dis distinguish the members of the Godhead in essence not their, their roles in salvation or their roles in the mission of God or the economic trinity. Now, if you want to know more about what any of those words mean, like eternal generation, um, spirits, procession, spiration, essence, then you'll have to come back in a few months when we do a whole study on the trinity, because I'm still figuring it out myself. Um, but the point for this lesson is that we need to be careful about making statements about the essence of the Trinity regarding human relations, especially from 1 Corinthians 11.3, which is talking about the economic Trinity. And another crucial point is we don't need this argument. We don't need a Trinitarian argument to affirm complementarian beliefs. So you could go home and go look at the Danvers statement. There is nothing about the Trinity in there. And I say this because one result, one really tragic result of this controversy amongst evangelicals and amongst complementarians is that egalitarians now claim quite often that to be complementarian means you believe in the heresy of subordinationism, so, which is just false. It's not true. But it could have been avoided, I think, if 
complementarians were more careful in their articulation of the Trinity and how they spoke about the Trinity in this debate. So all that to say, the answer to, to, to de Young's question for question number one is that what it means for the husband to be the head of his wife is that the husband has an authority over his wife. Question two, any questions about question one, Trinity stuff? Yeah, I think that it's, it's talking about the same thing. Um, economic trinity would just be more the classical language, the classically reformed way to speak about it, um, which makes me more comfortable to be in line, especially on issues of the trinity, to be in line with the historic confessions. But really the issue is the claim that the son is subordinate to the father in essence. That is the dangerous claim or the, the, the claim that is, is at issue. That's right. And they have an inseparable will in essence. Which again, this is, these are very big concepts that we can't get into today. I just thought I would mention the debate because it's important for how we interpret this text, but also how we articulate our complementarian beliefs and that we need to be careful in utilizing the Trinity in these debates. Um, but again, we are going to have a study on the Trinity, Lord willing, if I can figure it out. That is the claim. That, that would, that's what would make it the, the heresy. Yeah, and that's confusing to me, and that's where the, the creeds would say he's eternally begotten. That is what makes him son or distinct from the father. Okay, let's go to question two. <laughs> what is the covering? What is the covering that Paul's talking about? And this is one of the more perplexing questions in the passage because we just don't know exactly what Paul is meaning by covered and uncovered hair. Um, some folks argue that the covering in this text refers to the a usual custom of the culture and times for women to pile the hair up on top of their heads, which sounds quite interesting. Um, I'm not convinced by this argument, mainly just because I think the word covered and uncovered is referring to an actual head covering, some, some, some object or or fabric that is covering the head. Schreiner and de Young both argue that the covering is probably some sort of shawl, which is a hard word to say, a shawl, but we can't know for sure. Both agree that it was probably not a veil, like we see in many Muslim nations today, because face coverings were, were not common in Greco-Roman culture, which Corinth was placed in. De Young says the covering Paul has in mind was possibly a small wraparound scarf-like garment that could be placed on the head. And really the importance of figuring out what exactly the covering was is kind of exaggerated in my opinion. Right, the, the, the only reason it would really matter is if one believes that the custom of head covering for women during prayer and prophecy should be applied to our current context today. I don't believe that, which we're going to go into later. So this question is 
less important to me. Because I think the point Paul is making is clear, though. And this is what is crucial for our understanding of the text. The point is the woman, the wife, women are to adorn themselves in a certain way while worshiping through prayer and prophecy. What exactly the head covering is, is is unclear, but they were to adorn themselves with it. That's clear. And as we will see, they they, they were to adorn themselves in such a way that expressed proper gender distinctions and male authority in the church and in the home. On to question three. What head, what head does the woman dishonor in 1 Corinthians 11, 5? What head does the woman dishonor in 1 Corinthians 11, 5? Now this question is where this text in Corinthians, specifically verses 4 through 6, starts to get a little complicated. And I'm just going to read verses 4 through 6 to get her eyes on it. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So lots of references and mentions to the word head here. Um, And I don't want to get lost in the weeds because, again, I think the main point is really pretty simple. But it will be good for us to engage this section a little bit. The issue at hand is that Paul seems to to use different meanings for the word head throughout this section. And sometimes the, the one word head can have multiple meanings at once. So on the one hand, to disgrace one's head, as Paul talks about here, may mean that one disgraces one's self. So head in that way would just mean they're, they're, they're disgracing their self, their own self. On the other hand, dishonoring the head in verses 4 and 5 may refer to the head described in verse 3, or question 1, as the authoritative leader. So a man who wears a head covering brings dishonor on his head, who is Christ, And the woman who fails to wear a head covering brings dishonor on her head, her husband. And I follow Schreiner here who who argues that probably Paul intended both senses here and that each meaning is not mutually exclusive. So Schreiner writes, helpfully, he says, A woman who does not wear a head covering in Corinth both disgraces herself and brings dishonor on her authority, who is her husband. A man who wears a head covering dishonors himself and his authority, Jesus Christ. If one does not conform to the role God intended, one brings dishonor on himself and on one's authority. So, the conclusion then, or the main idea here, is that if a woman failed to wear a head covering and adorned herself like a man, she brought shame both on herself and her husband. And Schreiner argues that the the reason that it brings shame to her husband is because her behavior um, typifies her rebellion against the created order. 
which, it, which intends, remember all the way back to Genesis, it intends a distinction between man and woman. Her failure to wear a head covering then communicated rebellion and independence to everyone present in the worship of the local church at Corinth. So how does this apply to us today? That's the big question. I think it's clear that women can participate in the worship of the local church by praying and prophesying, if you believe prophecy is still active. But they must do so with a demeanor and an attitude that supports male headship and gender distinctions. That's the, that's the main point of this text, I would argue. So in the context of Corinth, wearing a head covering communicated a submissive demeanor and feminine adornment and affirmed male headship. So in, in our context, I would say that principle still directly applies to us, but how it will be applied is different based on, on the context. Does that make sense? We're going to go into the, to the application more at the end, but that's just kind of how I would apply that principle or how I think complementarians apply this, this principle from 1 Corinthians 11. That is one interpretation. I don't, I don't accept that interpretation, but it is possible. Yeah, well, I'm going to get to that, and, and Dion gets to it in later questions. Well, how about, how about this? How about at the end, if you're not satisfied with my argument, we can talk about it after. I think, I think a tough topic to hear. I mean, let's go, let's, let's do both like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm affirming that that is a possible interpretation. It is not the interpretation I hold. I would like you to listen to the rest of the evidence. And if you're still not satisfied, you, you totally are... All right, question four. What does Paul mean by authority in 1 Corinthians 11.10? What does Paul mean by authority in 1 Corinthians 11.10? So in verses 7 through 10 here of chapter 11, Paul gives further reasons why he wants women to wear head coverings and why men should not wear them. First, there's this argument that men should not cover their head because they are the image and glory of God, while woman is the glory of man. Paul is not denying the image of God and woman here. Paul is well aware that Genesis teaches both man and woman are created in God's image. Schreiner argues that the, the, the focus here should be on the word glory, and we should be asking, what does Paul mean when he says the man is the glory of God while the woman is the glory of man? Again, there, there's quite a lot of debate on what this term actually is denoting, but I follow Schreiner and DeYoung, as well as, as the common complementarian view, that the word glory here is closely related to or means honor. So the point Paul is making is that one should always honor and respect the source from which one came. And the woman honors man in the Corinthian context by wearing a head covering, thereby showing her husband is the head, the authority. 
really the, the thrust of this section, according to, to Schreiner, is that women, that the, the wife, should wear a head covering because she is man's glory, as in she was created to honor him. And woman was created to honor man because the source of woman is man. So think of Genesis 1 through 3 in the creation account. And that, that origin indicates a different role in the created order. And the woman was created for man in, in the created order. Or in order to help the man fulfill the mandate given to him. So that's how I interpret these, these verses 7 through 9. And notice that, that Paul rooted these distinctions in cre- creation and the created order, not in any cultural matter. Which means the principle of this verse, verse still very much applies to us. Now to DeYoung's question in verse 10, what does Paul mean by a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head? This is again yet another controversial verse, but it seems to be another argument in favor of women wearing head coverings in the Corinthian church. The issue is what is that what authority is Paul speaking about? DeYoung argues that the traditional interpretation of this text amongst Reformed believers is that the authority in verse 10 is talking about a sign of the husband's authority over his wife. And I think that that makes a lot of sense given the context. Recently, some scholars have argued that the authority the head covering signifies is the authority the wife has to pray and prophesy in the worship service. You could call this a, a symbol of a delegated authority from the elders to the woman. But I, I agree with DeYoung who states, and this is his quote, I don't think the two interpretations are all that different. In both views, the wife must have a sign on her head that she has not thrown off her husband's authority if she is to pray or prophesy. In other words, the head covering functions as a sign of submission to her husband and as a sign that she is therefore able to pray and prophesy in the assembly. I think think DeYoung is right, and the point is clear, relatively clear. The wife in the Corinthian church must wear a head covering as a sign of submission to her husband's authority. Notice also Paul gives another reason for this at the end of verse 10, which we just mentioned. He says, because of the angels. Um, I noticed the young did not touch this part of the verse in his book. And I think it's for good reason. It's because we, we don't know exactly what Paul means by this. Um, Tom Schreiner, in his, in his exegesis of this passage, he just states, because of the angels, what does he mean? We don't know for sure. And Tom Schreiner doesn't know. I, I certainly don't as well. Question five. What does Paul mean by referring to nature itself in verse 14? What does Paul mean by referring to nature itself in verse 14? So before getting to verse 14, and just because we're we're sort of briefly walking through this text, I think it'd be helpful to notice in verses 11 through 12, According to to Schreiner, Paul utterly rejects the notion that women are inferior or lesser human beings than men. He says both come from God and are mutually dependent on each other. 
And Paul clearly articulates and argues for a mutual dependence between man and woman here. So many egalitarians will just take these two verses um, and pluck them out of this chapter pretty much and focus just on these two verses, which I think is, I think all of us would agree that's pretty silly. But those of us who are complementarians should not fall into the ditch on the other side where we treat women as the inferior sex. That, that type of thinking will also not go in Paul's ethic and also must be rejected. So I think the best way to read Paul here is that in verses 3 through 10, Paul is making it clear that he believed in role distinctions between men and women, specifically in, in the church and home. And in verses 11 and 12, Paul shows that he did not thereby believe women inferior or less important. They were mutually dependent. Man is dependent on the woman, and they both come from God. Now, Paul makes the argument in verse 14 that nature itself teaches that Corinthians, that the Corinthians, that it is a disgrace for a man to wear long hair. This is a very intriguing argument, I think. And we must again ask of the text, what does Paul mean by nature itself? Because obviously, if left uncut, men and women's hair length would be the same, naturally. Or, or by nature, men and women's hair length would be the same. So I don't think Paul means by this term nature that there was no cultural influence or, or a complete rejection of culture or something like that. Nor do I think this thing, he's meaning that nature is referring to simply the, the human tradition and customs that have made distinctions between the hair length for men and women across all cultures. I think if we take Romans 1, 26 through 27 as a guide, we will get a better understanding of what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 11. And in Romans 1, Paul uses the same word there. In that context, Paul disparages homosexuality as being contrary to nature because men and women involved in homosexual relationships have exchanged the natural function of sexuality for what is contrary to nature. Homosexuals have violated the God-given created order and natural instinct that is in all humanity and all humans. I think Paul is using that term in the same way in 1 Corinthians 11.14, where he is referring to a natural and instinctive sense of right and wrong that God has planted in us, especially in regards to sexuality. Scharner argues this well. He, he says, For Paul, nature teaches in the sense that the natural instincts and psycholo psychological perceptions of masculinity and femininity are manifested in particular cultural situations. So nature teaches in the sense that the natural instincts and psychological perceptions of masculinity and femininity are manifested in particular particular cultural situations. So in other words, males instinctively and naturally shrink away from dressing or wearing his hair in a way that is his, his culture has labeled as feminine. And females have a natural inclination to dress and wear their hair like women rather than men. So DeYoung argues that the natural God-given inclination of men and women 
is to be ashamed of that which confuses their sexual differences. Young writes again, Culture gives us the symbols of masculinity and femininity, while nature dictates that men should embrace their manhood and women embrace their womanhood. So if you accept that, then Paul's main idea in this section of the text is that how men and women wear their hair is significant, is a significant indication of whether they're abiding in God's created order. And this, this, this does get a little messy, obviously, because we live in a different culture than Corinth, than, than, than that time. So I don't think Paul is universally saying long hair on men is sinful. I think how we apply this to our context takes wisdom, but the general principle must be followed. That what our culture dictates as masculinity and femininity should inform how we dress and present ourselves. So an obvious example is that men in our culture, in our current culture, should not wear summer dresses and makeup. That's not, that's not a pretty picture in our minds. And I think it's important to recognize we are supposed to be repelled in some sense by that according to this text because it goes against nature itself. It goes against our, our God-given instincts or, or conscience. Men should not dress like women and vice versa. Now, long hair on men is interesting I think our culture has changed quite a bit on this. You know, there's, there's such thing as a man bun now. Um, and it's fairly popular. And it's, in a certain sense, masculine, especially if you come where I come from, in Austin. Obviously, I've resisted the man bun. Um, again, I don't think there, there's a hard and fast rule on hair length that we can take here from 1 Corinthians 11. Really, I would argue this is a lifestyle principle. If you are a man, the questions should always be, am I wearing my hair this way or this clothing to appear like a woman? Or that can be perceived as being feminine by the culture. And if you're a woman, the question should always be, am I wearing my hair this way or this clothing to appear like a man? Or that can be perceived as being masculine by the culture. Paul would say, I think, pretty clearly, that would not be proper of the Christian. And we should, as the church, should care about what we wear because it communicates, um, it communicates in a real sense our views on gender distinction that God has ordered in his, in his wisdom, in his creation, how he created the world. Now, before we go to 1 Corinthians 14, I I want to address the question in more detail if women should still cover their heads while praying in our services. Any questions, comments first? Maybe we could. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think, yeah. I can't remember what I said, but essentially, I think that affirms the idea that if we wear our dress and hair in such a way that our culture identifies that as feminine if you're a man, that is an issue. So I think that would fit under that category for sure. 
Yeah, which that's a, obviously there's different, God makes us different shapes, sizes, which I don't think that's what Paul's talking about at all here, but how we adorn ourselves. So what we dress, how we do our hair, not talking about body types, because we all come in different shapes and sizes. It, it does make this question interesting, more complicated about cultural norms that or or because as you said our culture is going into what if the cultural norm is there is no distinction between men and women then what do Christians do I think that's why now um, it's extremely important that we're clear on this issue that there are distinctions between men and women and how we dress and how we um, our roles in the church and home it's it's vitally important, I would argue. But i got to move on. We're almost done. Sorry. Um, so on the question, um, should women still cover their heads? The first thing I would say is that if you read this text and you become convinced that you should cover your head while praying publicly in church, and, you've, and that is what your conscience is binding you to, then you should. It, it would be sin not to. Um, if your conscience is binding you to it. Now, having said that, I'm very confident this text does not require head coverings on women today. That is because when we approach this text, and really every text in Scripture, we must be able to distinguish between the fundamental principle that is the, the foundation of a text and the application of that principle in a specific culture. So I think that's exactly what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11. So we have an underlying principle that is applicable to everyone everywhere, that principle is, is the sexes, though they are equal, have different roles and responsibilities. And specifically, if women are to pray, they must do so under the authority of male headship. In Corinth, that meant wearing a head covering. That was the, the symbol that signified submission to the wife's husband. So that's not the case for us today. I don't think we have a good or exact parallel to apply this in our culture. DeYoung points out maybe a wedding ring or a, a woman taking the last name of her husband signifies male headship in the same way. But regardless, it's important to remember that Paul is only concerned about head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11 because of what they portrayed or message they sent to the Corinthians. So I think it's pretty clear that the specific use of the word head coverings is no longer applicable to ladies today in our current culture because I would say that's an application that Paul is making of the, of the, of the fundamental principle which is applicable to us. So that's my argument for no head coverings. I'm satisfied with it. Um, on to question six which is 1 Corinthians 14. Just turn your pages over. And this is a really good question. How can Paul command women to be silent in the churches in 1 Corinthians 14? How can he command women to be silent in 1 Corinthians 14 when he regulates women praying and prophesying in 1 Corinthians 11? This is a very good question, and I think it's one we should all have as we read 1 Corinthians there seems to be a contradiction, obviously, here in Paul. Now, the first thing I would say is that Paul is not stupid. So, if we come to something that appears like a contradiction, 
like we have here in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, we, ass- we should assume that Paul isn't contradicting himself. And most likely the issue is with our interpretation of what he is writing or our understanding of his argument. And I think that's what is happening in these two texts. They're, they're addressing two different situations. Paul is not giving a blanket statement in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 36, that women should not speak in churches altogether. Again, that would be a complete contradiction to chapter 11, where he says women can pray and prophesy under the authority of their husband. Now, the context for Paul's statement in chapter 14 is interpretation of prophecies. And we really don't have time to get into the whole prophecy debate, but we talked about it in our, in our last study on the spiritual gifts. But really the point is that in the New Testament age, prophecies were given, and then there was an interpretation or an evaluation of these prophecies. And the vast majority of commentators agree that is what Paul is addressing in verses 34 and 36. So woman, the, the women should keep silent in evaluating or judging the prophecies. Notice something similar happens of verse 28 in and, and, and chapter 14. Paul says that tongue speakers must keep silent in the church if there is no interpreter present. Does that mean that person, the tongue speaker, can never speak? I'm going to pull a Paul. By no means. Of course not. I think we should interpret verses 34 through 36 the same. Paul clearly isn't saying women should never talk at church. This command does not assume that in all situations women cannot speak. The explicit situation in which women must be silent is when prophecies were being evaluated. De Young makes the argument that the reason for this is because in the evaluation of prophecy, there is some sort of teaching and a exercising of authority, specifically over the prophet themselves, by the ones evaluating the prophecy. And Paul clearly consistently denies these two activities, teaching and exercising authority um, to women in the rest of his teaching. Um, and if the, if the women, Paul goes on to say, if the women have a question regarding the weighing of prophecies, they should ask their husbands at home, or they would violate the principle of submission, I think, in marriage. Now, how this applies to, to our current church context requires a lot of wisdom, and different churches are going to land in different places. And we're going to dive into this question specifically in a future week when we talk about the particular roles men and women can do in a local church, according to the New Testament. But for this particular text, if you're a cessationist, like I am, um, we don't have times for prophecies in our worship services, right? in our Lord's Day gatherings, like, like the New Testament church, then the application of this text becomes more sparse, I would say. We, just, we, we don't evaluate prophecies. Obviously, if we did evaluate prophecies, then the command of this text would mean women could not participate in that evaluation process or the judgment of these prophecies. But we're going to hold off on talking about the women's role in church in other capacities for like three more weeks. So if you're excited about that, you can look forward to it. Next week, any final questions, comments? We're kind of out of time. I'm sorry for cramming that in. Um, Next week again, Chance Lusk is leading us through chapter five of the young book on
the complementarian view of marriage, which is a weighty task. So thanks for your participation, attention. You guys are dismissed.